You are now listening to Hood Red Politics with your host, Jay Jones. And this podcast talks about the cultural, social, and political issues facing the black community. It's Hood Red Politics. Now let's start the show. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Hood Red Politics. Today's guest is my friend Brittany, who is a lecturer at North Carolina A&T, and she is also a doctoral student at North Carolina State University. Okay, yeah, I was about to say that, but I wasn't sure. I didn't want it to be like Duke or something. You'd be like, nah, girl, it's the other it's the other school in Raleigh-Durham. <laughs> okay, so Brittany, tell them a little bit about yourself. Something I ain't told them already. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, Brittany Clark Young. I am a lecturer at North Carolina A&T, three degrees shorty on the way. Um, graduated from Louisiana State University with my bachelor's, A&T with my master's, HBCU Pride, and I am currently getting my PhD at North Carolina State University in Communication Rhetoric and Digital Media. Whoa, look at that. You got two three-degree shotties on the podcast today. That's like six degrees on one podcast. This is a whole lot of student loan debt on one podcast. Huh. You feel me? <laughs> um, we got we got some HBCU love. You know, Brittany went to North Carolina A&T. I went to Prairie View a University. Currently go to Clark Atlanta University. And then we both went to that gold, that purple and gold, LSU, out in BR, Brittany is uh, coming back from from homecoming. homecoming. Yeah, uh, Jay City, BR native. What's up? Excuse her if she slurs her words a little bit. We're known to turn up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You know, you feel me? Cute. You know, dumb. Yes, yes. Cute, cute that bitch. I'm from Louisiana. Soundtrack. We're going to have that plan. Anyway, though, we're going to get into some real hot topics. But first, we're going to hop into what is hot in these Twitter streets. All right, so the first thing we're going to get into is this whole Kanye West showing up at Howard's situation. You know, this weekend was Howard Homecoming, and everybody likes to boost that Howard Homecoming is the best HBCU homecoming um, because it is the Mecca. I kind of beg to differ, okay? Uh, <laughs> it's funny because <clears throat> most recently, uh, Oprah gave $13 million, I believe, to Morehouse. And so there's tweets that ha- that have been saying what I have been saying for quite some time. There are more than three HBCUs. More HBCUs exist than um, Howard Spellman and Morehouse. Now, granted, we love these schools. No shade to Howard. I wanted to go to Howard. If I had the opportunity to get another degree, I know my daddy tired of me getting degrees, mm-hmm. so this is the last one. But if I had the opportunity to get another degree, I probably would check Howard out. However, um, I kind of sometimes would like the same amount of attention given to a Shaw or EWC or Miles or Talladega or some of these other lesser known HBCUs, right? But anyway, it was homecoming weekend at Howard. You know, it's time for all the celebrities to pop out and pretend like they love HBCUs. And the the first person, or not the first person, shall I say, rather... um, the person who has been getting the most attention for being at Howard Homecoming this weekend was Kanye West. Now, it's interesting that he would go there and perform his um, mix of R&B remade uh, gospel songs or whatnot um, on the campus of Howard University for two reasons. Um, number one, 
Howard is facing an issue with capitalism and gentrification right now. We've kind of continuously seen them um, in the news. Number for for at one point in time, white people were like walking their dogs, walking their dogs across the, park, the campus, disrespecting the yard. Yeah, just 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 crazy shit. So they got that going on. And then number two, Kanye West is an avid Trump supporter, right? And so his being there. It, like, takes away from all the things that our HBCUs stand for. Uh, Donald Trump didn't even want to fund HBCUs. There are people who feel like HBCUs should no longer exist. And so I think it's blasphemous for him to be there. I think it's disrespectful to our ancestors. However, people still showed up and shuck and jived, you know, and it, it... it, get, it brings me to a question of, can you separate the artists and the artistry from the stuff that they say and the stuff that they represent? Is cancel culture real? Do we really cancel people? Or do we just temporarily give them like a slap on the wrist? Like, we really not fucking with R. Kelly no more, right? right. But clearly, Kanye gets a pass for saying dumb shit. So, like, do you have to be touching on little girls for us to cancel you? Or, like, what is it that, that qualifies you to be officially canceled? It's interesting that we talk about cancel culture specifically because there's this argument about arts for change sake and arts for art's sake. So black artists have this responsibility that they can't create music or that they can't be people without having some type of um, change associated with them. So if they aren't talking about slavery, if they aren't talking about black issues that affect the black community, then they're a sellout. But in Kanye's case, when you've come up, you've built yourself off of songs like Jesus Walks, College drop out and you were an avid supporter in the black community before you switched the fuck up and apparently uh became a MAGA supporter it's 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 just ridiculous so in this case I don't think that we can separate Kanye from his artists his artistry and his music because he constantly brings his politics back into his music no I agree um I think Kanye West for one well let's talk about Donald Trump for a second now, there have been other presidents in our lifetime that we have not necessarily agreed with or aligned ourselves with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, there has not been one as openly problematic, and I'm not going to say as problematic because people were putting drugs in our communities. They were, you know, black folks were still getting killed when other people were in office. We were literally used as pawns by Lincoln to to reunite the union, and we were told that he, he freed us because he just like fucking black people and shit so i mean we have a whole list of problematic presidents but the most problematic has been or openly problematic should i say has been donald trump and i can be friends with people who have different ideologies in me of me um I am an academic, and so it is possible for me to see all sides of a of a subject i'm also introspective so it's also it's it's I'm aware of people having different opinions, but I think when it comes to a person like Donald Trump, who is so rooted in bigotry and white supremacy, that it's impossible for me to befriend you, for me to support you, if you support him because of the things that he is he stands for, because of the things that he has said. I don't see any way around that. Yeah, it's really no coming back from that. And the fact that so many people did show out to support Kanye after he showed support for Trump, it it says a lot. And I think it brings to the fact that uh, this this upcoming generation, because those are the college students now, right? They're 18 to 21 years old. That's who is out there supporting them. So you have this split between 
the it's always a debate on who's a millennial now um who supports um of course not donald trump but younger generations are even like the kids that i teach they don't see anything wrong with some of the rhetoric that trump has to say and that's harmful that's problematic so my thing is just like there's a split between the older generation if you look at the professors who were talking about kanye west um they are livid about kanye west being on campus they have started writing op-ed pieces already it's only sunday oh boy was just there yesterday um and they're upset and the younger kids they're just i don't know they're fine with it. So what what does that say about this incoming generation that's voting for these presidents, especially as we're in, um, you know, the primaries and voting for candidates for the DNC and whatnot? What does that look like for the next election? Um, it breaks my heart, mostly because I really did fuck with Kanye. Um I mean, TLOP is like still my favorite album, and I'm sorry I don't I don't want to give that up because I mean, Father Stretch My Hands is my shit. But um, yeah, it's just I I don't think I would ever pull up number one to one of his church sermons. I'm a little weary about that shit anyway. Uh, and I mean, we can go into the topic of religion at a different time, but I, I, you can't talk to me about slavery and Christianity in the same breath like that. It, that's just not, that's not going to work for me because we have been force fed Euro- Eurocentric standards and patriarchal views and, and, and white patriarchal views. And that has crafted the society that we have to, na- that we have today. Essentially, we follow their rules. And so, um, because of that, that's not a discussion that, that I would want him to have at no church service. But I don't think you can talk about Ye without talking about religion because he's using religion to get black folk back. I mean, no, this is true. This <laughs> yeah. is true. This is true. But I'm saying him on stage talking about, you know, if a slave net would cast, how about we not all stand right. in one place? I'm tired of motherfuckers thinking our ancestors ain't do shit, bruh. Like, these motherfuckers had slave re- rebellions and shit. Just because the shit ain't in your goddamn white history book that they're teaching you, that don't mean motherfuckers wouldn't burning plantations down and shit. You think niggas just mm-hmm. sit there and let they ass get beat? Like, I refuse to believe i refuse to believe it was fuckery it was trickery and and i really hate motherfuckers that have like shirts that say you know i am not my ancestors you can catch these hands type shit because they was throwing hands too they just ain't teach your black ass about it in these white ass schools and if you so real if you so about it then why you ain't the nat turner 2019 and leading the goddamn (laughs) rebellion bruh look he claims that we're in a post-racial society, that he can support Trump. Um, there's a lot of things that show me otherwise. Number one, Atiana, I, oh, I'm sorry, Tatiana Jefferson was killed at 2.30 a.m. Um, by Fort Worth police. Her neighbor called the 311, the, that which is a non-emergency number that you call to do like a wellness check or something to that effect on someone's house. Because her door, her lights were on and her door was ajar. And so he wants to, he wanted to make sure that everything was going good, you know, with her in her house. Make sure no one broke in, something to that effect. So he did what he was supposed to do when he called the police. And the police, instead of assessing the situation properly from a window, I I think. I don't want to look at the body cam footage because um, I have tried to remove myself from trauma porn. But um, from what I've read, from a window is how he shot her because he saw like or saw a person like standing and, and shot at them through the window and, and essentially killed her. Uh, that's murder in the first degree. 
Um, now, of course, they're going to have, like, a, a, a jury and a trial and all that, and it's probably going to get brought up as, like, a mistake or something to that effect, right? But we're seeing this happen way too often, where it's not just, okay, now we have to, uh, it's not just that we have to subscribe to respectability politics when we get pulled over and we get questioned. We are now getting shot in our own homes. And I don't know what a post-racial society looks like where black people are getting shot in their own homes. I have to question, with Botham John or with a, with a Tatiana Jefferson have gotten shot if they were Sarah and Bob and they were white? That's when the fear comes in and it shows that we're not in a post-racial society. We always hear cops talking about how they were afraid or they reacted because they were under stress or in a stressful situation. But you went to police training for this. You went to the police academy. If you are afraid to do your job as a police officer, why are you in the police force? And it's ridiculous because these trigger notions are this trigger anxiety, as I'm liking to call it now, um, at the hands of white police officers when black people are present is only happening to black people. And we're no longer safe out. We were never safe, honestly, outside of the homes. And if we're getting shot inside of our homes, where can we go? You know, that's a good question, which is why I can't support the rhetoric that we chose to be slaves from Kanye West. I can't support the rhetoric that our ancestors did not do anything. I cannot support the rhetoric that we are in a post-racial society and that Trump is for us. I can't support any of those things because a system that was never meant to protect us is not failing us. It was never. It was never for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been that way. We will always be the other. I don't think that that will ever change. And so I'm not even sure at this point what we say, or what we do, or what plans we put in motion for people to stop killing us. Speaking of which, um, when Samaji was here a few weeks ago, we talked about the Botham John case, and we were in the middle of the trial, and. Um, the next day, Amber Geiger was found guilty. And then the following day after that, uh, she received her sentencing of 10 years, which, you know, we thought was a little bit of nothing in comparison to, to for walking in someone's house and literally shooting and killing them. Um, but one of the things that Twitter was most up in arms about was the the patting of her hair, the rubbing her hair down, um, the brother hugging her, and the judge hugging her and giving her a Bible. Now, personally, if uh, Botham John's brother, younger brother, wants to grieve in the way that he wants to grieve, which includes hugging and outwardly forgiving Amber Geiger, that's his thing. You know, I can't tell someone how to deal with something as traumatizing as having your brother murdered by the literal people who are uh, who take the job on to protect us. I do think it was utilized for agenda setting on how we should forgive and all that other good shit. But forgiveness is only a thing in the media when it comes to black people. Um 
I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want you to forgive them motherfuckers. I want you to raise some goddamn hell on my behalf. If you gotta, if you gotta ask me, raise fucking hell. I want you to burn shit down. Okay, but for him, you know, he felt like that's what he, he, his brother would have wanted. And so he gave her the hug or whatever and basically told her he forgave her. Now, for the judge, um, I was happy to see a black judge presiding over the case because I felt like, okay, we, we got somebody there that, um, is going to be impartial enough and still give us justice if that's if that makes sense. Um, I can't trust a, a, a white judge to get up there and and look at it not on the police department side. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't help. I think it was a conflict of interest that the judge is backed by the DPD. But um, sis came down from her pulpit or what? What's the judge's thing called, girl? It's not a pulpit. You know, I'm not sure, but it might as well be called a pulpit. Anyway, sis came down from the pulpit because she gave up Bible. Sis came down from the pulpit and gave Amber Geiger her own, you know, her very own Bible before she went in jail and gave her a hug. And um, I don't give a damn how much white women decide that they want to cry in the courtroom. If you came in, in someone's house and you shot and killed them, then, I mean, jail is the correct option. And so with that being said, um... White women's tears have been the death of black men for years, years. Um, I mean, even at the, and I hate to bring this topic up as a uh, sexual assault survivor, but I mean, there is a history of white women screaming rape at the um at the expense of black men and black men being hung for all of us to see as an example as w- of what you don't do when messing with with white men's white women and so her tears do absolutely nothing for me but apparently it did something for the black judge for her to come down and give her a hug so Brittany, what are, what is your thoughts about okay, that okay first of all let's go on the record and say oh, she that was ready. if somebody walks into my house and shoots me Listen, I want all kinds of hell raised. Do not go and hug my killer. I am all for Christianity. I'm all for loving somebody with the love that Christ gives us. I'm in church all the time, believe me. But there's a difference between forgiveness and stupidity. And no offense to how his brother chose to mourn himself, but I'm telling my family and friends right now, don't go hug my killer. Um... Your second point, white women's tears. As a black woman, mm. I think uh, JSI was intuitive enough as to what I'm about to say. But um, I say this all the time, that white women's tears, that's that's a powerful weapon. And it can even be more powerful than uh, a white man's presence. So, so you know, that's saying something. Um, as a sexual assault survivor myself, um, I have seen the effects of this, um, not just on black men, but black women as well. Um, yeah, so when people falsely accuse black people of rape, when a black man starts to rise in a certain position and then a white woman speaks out and cries and says that they um, sexually assaulted them or that they raped them. If we look at the Emmett Till case and how it took him... The lady, uh, didn't she come out right before she died or yeah, something like that? Yeah, on her deathbed, and she won't tell the truth. Tell, Bitch won't want your truth now. <laughs> like, the fuck? 
fuck you did all that crying 50 some years ago for you to come out and, and and those are the things Brittany that's why when she gets on that stand and everybody starts preaching in these long uh, epilogues mm-hmm. and shit on Facebook about fucking forgiveness no fuck that shit <laughs> fuck that bitch on, on this podcast in, in every degree that I got <laughs> fuck that bitch rock politics with Jay Jones everybody <laughs> <laughs> because like that's, it's not cool like we, you're, we're not about to use Christianity and the rhetoric of Christianity to perpetuate that black people always have to be the people who are forgiving and especially black women Zoran Neale Hurston said black women are the mules of the earth and that's for a reason. If we go back and look at slavery, how we uh, breastfed their children, how we mm. were their wet nurses, how we had to continue having children so that our milk didn't run up so that the white baby could get fed. I mean, we could talk about the whole mammy position for... That can be a whole discussion for a whole other day. And then so we have to get, get into, into <laughs> black mortality rates. You got us having your baby so that you don't die on this on this um, hospital bed while you giving birth. So it's like there's there's just so much into it that I cannot sit there and share or um, be in a place where I can say, oh, I get it. This is beautiful. This is forgiveness. And the media is going to perpetuate that and push that out all the time, right? right? Because they see that as a nation, we are up in arms about the situations that have been going on, about the way that black people have been getting treated, about the things that have been going on, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. our society, and it's not that we're doing something now and we weren't doing something to begin with because we were always doing something, but I think we've reached another level of consciousness right. that we were not previously at. And um, and as a black woman in power, I feel like the judge should be cognizant of that, you right. know? So it's I like agree. this post-racial society bullshit that is getting perpetuated or that we live in a colorblind society, that's another kind of racism. Right. Yeah, my, my boss at my old job used to tell me that she doesn't see color, and that always bothered me because it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. You're going to be a white woman, I'm going to be a black woman, and I need you to see color because I need you to see your privilege. All right, if we look at the last episode of Blackish, where all the girlfriends came in for the feminist group, right. did you see that? And how um, her her white friend is Sherman Oaks. Um, for those of you who don't watch Blackish, so I'm sure everybody does, Rainbow is a doctor, so they live in an affluent neighborhood um, in Sherman Oaks in Los Angeles. And her partner in crime for her feminist movement was a white woman named Abby. So when it came down to... Um, Bo doing something for... It was for a feminist march. I can't exactly remember. Um, she basically had... Abby came at her, and she basically had to choose between being black and being a woman. So she had to call in the girlfriends from the old show. If you, you remember the old show, they all came in to guest start on the show. And they were basically there for black up, what they called it, to have her back. <laughs> and um, black up. they started talking about wage differences and how uh, a, a white supporter said or a white activist who was there said that uh, women still get paid 73 cents on the dollar compared to men and then one of the black women spoke up and said that's just white women black women are still only getting paid 63% on the dollar and they're like I think you're missing the bigger focus shouldn't shouldn't it be on the women's movement yada 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 and they came at rainbow but it's like you should not have to choose between being black and being a woman. And especially with a judge, you are in a position that, A, not a lot of black people are judges, and B, not a lot of black women are judges. So you have to be cognizant of that role. Regardless of if you want to or not, you have that responsibility. 
And um, she she did do an interview in which I saw where she said, you know, if Amber was black, would there be so much um, of an uproar? And there wouldn't. But I think that the, the bigger issue is black um, people who are about to go to jail for crimes, whether they did it or not, don't get that kind of treatment, period. Mm-hmm. And so there would not have been such a big uproar over that if it was like kind of the norm type deal. Um, and so for this, it's like white people and white women especially continuously get off. We can talk about the multiple people who have longer sentences than Amber Geiger who have done like way less. And um, it just it, it's, it's not fair. But again, I mean, life isn't fair. Again, the system wasn't meant to protect us. Mm -hmm. And one person that it did not protect, um, for sure, would be Joshua Brown. And I'm only going to touch on this briefly because this is a kind of um, sticky topic for me. Um, However, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his name in this podcast and, and how it ties into the Botham Jean case. Both him and the black young lady who recorded the incident um, were getting death threats, um, were having people trying to, to target. The, the young lady had people targeting her at her job. I think she lost her job. She got blacklisted in the industry that she's in. And then Josh um, was killed. And um, at this point, the police are saying it was a a drug deal going wrong. Um, I do want to clear up some things. I'm not sure if it was a drug deal go, going wrong or not. Um, it seems a little sticky and a little ironic that this happened right after this case and so of course conspiracy theories come out but i mean there are some things that you know you do want to make known and make sure that you don't push across the internet um it is totally possible for people to drive from alexandria to dallas to get one and without incriminating anybody that i know Uh, I'm not sure if Joshua's the plug or not. I don't know him personally. But if there is a plug, it is possible for people to travel quite far to to move uh, large packages of drugs. So, (laughs) large substances. Uh, There is uh, trafficking laws for a reason. Uh, there's federal laws for trafficking for a reason. It's not something that doesn't happen. I thought it was hilarious on Twitter that all these people claimed to be so goddamn hood and didn't know that people travel across state lines for large <laughs> for large packages of drugs. Um, yeah, that's 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 not an uh, an uncommon thing. Um, also, from my understanding, he didn't want to testify. Um, I believe that he was subpoenaed. Um, and if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But I don't think that um, he really wanted that public spotlight put on him. And for many reasons, not necessarily mm-hmm. because he may or may not have been a drug dealer. Because, I mean, no black li- no life, period, deserves to be taken away. But, I mean, this kind of attention, this this large of a case can bring so many unwanted things your way. And so, you know, for good reason on, on not necessarily... Can you believe people, black people was calling him a snitch? Wow. I wanted to touch on that. Like, uh-huh. the fuck? But anyway, um, 
Yeah, there, there's Takashi Six Nine. There's y'all have got to define what snitching is before y'all attack people on social media. He was a whistleblower, okay? <laughs> when it's uh, federal, it's a whistleblower. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, no. Nah, to 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 be you know quite honest, he did the right thing, and uh, you know it cost him his life. And whether it was because now people who, you know, knew about him knew where to pull up at him at his house. To my understanding, he wasn't living in that same apartment complex that, that she was. Everybody was like, well, how is he selling drugs living above a, a cop? Um, I don't think he was still staying there. But, I mean, regardless, um, it's too ironic for me. Yeah, I think we have to be really careful, um, especially with these kind of things, when we label things. Um, even when we say things like speculation or a conspiracy theory, it can sound like you're leaning towards one side of the situation. First off, both the people in the case um, who testified they did not deserve to be attacked at any reason, that's what I think should be the highlight of it is. Of course, highlighting Joshua Brown's life, but um, I'm just asking, or when you guys talk about this on social media, just be careful because um, your words are used against you um, a lot of the times in the media, and we have to be careful of the narrative we create. Um, so while discussing what role Joshua Brown may have played in this entire scenario, whether he was the plug and, you know, that transpired as a, you know, aftermath event of that, or I not even going to touch on what it is because I'm not knowledgeable enough about the case, um, to say if, if it was a conspiracy theory or not, or what's actually going on. So just, you know, be mindful of what you say, because as a black community, as black people, what we say, uh, can get misconstrued in conversation for sure. I agree. And, uh, I want to give a, a rest in peace to, to Botham John, to a Tatiana Jefferson, to Joshua Brown, um, us here at Hood Red Politics have been following these stories or will continue to follow the Atiana Jefferson story and, and just want to kind of give prayers and, and condolences to the family. And I know that, you know, we can give thoughts and prayers all day long because thoughts and prayers don't really do anything. But at this point, I'm like, what can we do? You know? All right, up next, I'm going to ask Brittany the same question I asked Samaji about how did she know she was black because that seemed to be, like, a really good question last podcast. So we're going to touch on that. That might be, like, my thing for, like, every guest that I have on here. It's Jay and it's Hood Red Politics. Are you looking for professional audio production for your next podcast, music, or single? Well, if that's you, the new influential music has got you covered. With rates as low as $25 an hour for basic recording and a location right in the heart of Midtown Atlanta, we work with emerging entrepreneurs, speakers, recording artists, and voice actors. We help them craft a unique sound and achieve their creative visions. Whether you're in the greater Atlanta area or in a different city, we provide a range of options for your audio needs. Contact us today to kick off your creative project. Visit us at www.nuinfluential.com. So last week, Samaji was in the building, and we had an in-depth discussion about how did we realize, or when did we realize that we were black. And um, I kind of brought up that I knew I was black when it mattered, when I moved to Texas. So Brittany, I want to touch on for you, how did you know you were black? I think my answer would be similar to... um what you said on the podcast with Samaji, I have grown up 
in a black city. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I grew up in a black neighborhood. I grew up in the quote-unquote hood part of Sherwood <laughs> in Baton Rouge, if you want to call that the hood. But I've always gone to predominantly white schools. Um, but it's interesting because I didn't know that I was black or considered myself different than until I stepped on the campus of Louisiana State University. Wow. So um, I my first year of college, I went to University of Louisiana at Monroe. Uh, which is a smaller school, but it's still very far from a black school. It's not HBCU. Um, but I was always surrounded by other black people at ULM, so I didn't really think, other than I didn't really think differently. Um, but the minute I stepped on campus at LSU, I was legit in a culture shock. Um, my first, I was Manship alum. Go manship. Um, my first uh, <laughs> broadcast journalism class before I changed my major eighty million my major eighty million times. Um, I was the only black person in the room, and I was the only woman in the room. So it was a double shot, a double slap to the face. So um, when we were talking about issues that we wanted to. Um, investigate for a class i remember we had to do proposals before we turned in stories and this was around the time that michael brown um and ferguson uh had just hit the scene and they were doing a protest at the lsu law center um so i proposed that i wanted to cover that story and have someone out there to record take pictures and i was also writing for the reveille which um not going to get into that because huh, some things went down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, another story for another day. But um, I wanted to propose it, and it was just so interesting because it had already been on the news for over a month, and nobody in the class had heard about what happened in Ferguson. I had to explain the entire situation to a room of my peers. And it's just funny because a lot of the pushback or, I guess, the uh, otherness I felt for being black was always from my peers. It was never from the faculty at LSU. So that yeah. was really interesting. And then in that moment, that's when I found out. I was like, okay, so I'm black. <laughs> I knew I was black prior, too. But at that point, it, like, sparked. 2014 did a lot for a lot of people. And it sparked my activism in that way. So I was always cognizant of the fact that I was black. At that point, it was just like, okay, now I have to live in my blackness. Now I have to be loud and unapologetically black. So, yeah, that's when I think um, I definitely woke was woke, woke up at that point um, when I realized that other people need to know about my community. Other people don't care about my community unless I speak up. So, yeah, I think that's when I stepped into my blackness for sure. And now Brittany is blackity black, 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 <laughs> as I'd like to say. Um, so, Brittany, go ahead and tell them about um, your transition into your master's program. Yeah. Um, you you went to decide to go to an HBCU. I go did. team HBCUs. <laughs> Decided to go to an HBCU, which you majored in, and kind of how you're transitioning into your doctoral program now. Right. So, um, in undergrad, I, of course, well, I said I was in Manship. That's the Manship School of Mass Communication. I graduated as a public relations major, but I participated in this program called McNair Scholars Program. If those of you who don't know who Ronald E. McNair is, he is a major person um, in black history. He was one of the astronauts on the Challenger that exploded. I can't remember what year that was, but um, he is very prominent in black history. Um, and the McNair Scholars Program is geared at helping black underrepresented students um, our first gen and first, genera first generation college students 
who are uh, wanting to obtain a PhD because it's not a lot of people that look like us who hold PhDs. Um, so I was very thankful and grateful to come across that program. It helped me. For those of you who are still in college who may be listening, for those of you who have younger mentees in college, please direct them towards that program. That and TRIO programs. TRIO also hosts Upward Bound, which is a program that gets underrepresented children ready for college. It gives them um, free SAT testing. They also pay for college application fees. It is an amazing program. Um, Magnair will also pay for your applications to graduate school. Mm. Um, and it also got me ready uh, for research. It got me presenting at conferences. I flew out to the Midwest. I flew out to Washington to do all these conferences on their dime. So it is an amazing, amazing program. I'm not going <laughs> to ramble on about that. But um, so a lot of the debate that I heard, and if you're not familiar with the schools in Baton Rouge, you have Southern University, which is HBCU present in Baton Rouge, and you have LSU. So there's always this pushback between both sides, um, between the HBCUs and the PWI, although I like to call them historically white institutions, which came from Brittany Cooper, because we have to realize that they are historically white, not just predominantly white, because if you call them predominantly white, you erase the need for HBCUs. Um, so, yeah, um, and a lot of the debate that I heard in college was uh, that black people shouldn't go to LSU because we were never wanted there in the first place. And I, it was just always that debate between PWIs and HBCUs will always be a dead horse, in my opinion. Um, but I kept hearing about it and I understood that I can't speak on this issue because I have never set foot and attended an HBCU. Um, so I was not knowledgeable. I did not have the criteria or the experience to talk about this stuff. And my whole family, my dad's side, my mom's side, everybody went to Southern University A&M College in Baton Rouge. So the minute that I stepped on the LSU, y'all can best believe I got chewed out. <laughs> my whole family went to Southern. If they didn't go to Southern, I had some family go to FAMU. My entire family, which is HBCU. I was the first one to gang, go gang. to a predominantly white school. So um, once I started researching master's programs, um, I intended to go straight for my PhD. And I'm, I have no shame in this because bounce back game is strong. You hear me? I applied to six predominantly white schools for PhD programs and got into none of them. Because my GPA wasn't where they thought it would be. But my HBCU, <laughs> I got in and got a full scholarship to the master's program. I went there. They gave me a second chance. I showed out and I walked across the stage with a 4.0 GPA. And all Come the on, same 4. schools 0. that I applied to the first go-round wanted me again on the second go-round. So it just goes to show that, um, y'all, HBCUs are important. I graduated from both a PWI and a HBCU. They are both important. We need black students at both of these schools for progress, but do not um, underestimate the importance of an HBCU. Um, so I continue to teach at North Carolina A&T State University. Um, like Jay said, um, other schools are in need besides Howard Morehouse and Spelman. I just want to take a second. Um, if you haven't heard about what happened with Bennett College, um, I just want to say where were all these philanthropists then? When Bennett needed so much money to stay open, I think they only needed $2 million. Um, and Morehouse, I'm not saying that Morehouse shouldn't get all this money. Of course, their student debt should be paid off and whatnot. But some of that money could have been used to save one of the only standing HBCUs left specifically for black women. 
Right. Um, so that's that's all I'm going to say on that. So make sure you support all HBCUs. Uh, but yeah, so I still teach at North Carolina Not A&T. just the popular ones, but align more closely with cultural capital. Okay, cultural capitalism because we like to support the bougie black uh, HBCUs and 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 you know what, Brittany, I you know I'm not gonna take anything uh, away from it. Uh, North Carolina A and T and Prairie View probably top that list of mm-hmm. you know some of the bougie black schools. Yeah. <laughs> but you gotta you gotta get with some of these little schools in the country. You gotta hit up a, a Jarvis Christian College, mm-hmm. a, a, a Texas College, a Miles, a Talladega, a Albany, a yeah. Fort Valley State. A flomo, you know, you you gotta hit up these other schools. They they are just as important. Even the ones who who are now, you know, a little fun fact. There's a school um, out in West Virginia that's an HBCU. It's called Bluefield State, and it's seventy percent white. Seventy oh, percent wow. white, but a historically black college is a is a college that was created and intended for for colored people. And so, you know, so a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, because that it hardly ever happens. Very few times, um, these schools don't stay a hundred percent black or you know ninety percent black. You have the schools that will you know kind of cater to mm-hmm. the other, which also shows that you know HBCUs are not just for black people. They were created for black people, but I think the the culture of it now is that we are very welcoming and we give second chance to a all minorities because Hispanics are finding their place in HBCUs as well. But Most white people. people, you know, white people as well. There's opportunities for for everybody. But I don't want to deny the fact, like you said, that they are. In important so coming from your hbcu and transitioning into your doctor's program um how is that and and what did you major in at north carolina and yeah i majored in english and african-american literature okay. so there was the african-american aspect there um it for disclosure it was a tough transition um I thought coming into an HBCU that I was kind of intimidated. I'm not going to lie. So I came from a a white school. So coming into HBCU, I thought, oh, God, I hope I am just, like, black enough. (laughs) And I think that that's a fear of a lot of kids who come from predominantly white high schools that's going into HBCU. It can be... um, kind of intimidating but once you're there you realize that there's so many different kinds of blackness man there's not one monolith of blackness and you could be a black kid who likes anime um black kid that skateboards you can be a black kid who is a chemistry major or one that's weird and just listens to i don't know whatever you want to listen to death there's metal so many... or some shit yeah. <laughs> not saying that death metal is weird but um... nah, that shit weird bro <laughs> that shit weird fuck what she talking about that shit weird ah, weak. um but yeah so you can find your space and place in these places so um I went from an all-white background to two years of mostly black professors, uh, mostly black cohort members, uh, mostly black people working in the graduate school where I worked. It was I was just surrounded by blackness. And then North Carolina State is, again, a predominantly white school. Um, my, cohort, my cohort has 11 members, and I am the only black one. Woo. So I went from being 13% at LSU... 13% of the student population, black population at LSU, um, where I had to find my tribe and my space um, to an all-black space, <laughs> and I got comfortable, and then I go to an all-white school where I'm one of 11. Not only one of 11, but I'm the only black woman. And so, so how was that? It's lonely. 
Um, it's isolating. I am still struggling to find my foot um, where I fit in. Uh, I go and teach at A&T two days out the week, and I'm around black kids and my students, and they feed my blackness and my soul. It makes me so happy. And honestly, if I still wasn't teaching at A&T, I would probably be lost and depressed. And then I go to North Carolina State three days a week, and I'm completely surrounded by white faces. So I feel like I'm living in two different worlds. It's hard. Are you also the youngest? Yeah. So do they undermine what you say because you're young, because you're black, because you're a woman? You know, it's hard to undermine what you don't understand. So if you don't know what I'm talking about already, off, off rip, I mean, that's kind of an under, is that a word? Undermization? That's not a word. <laughs> that's not undermining of its own. Um, I have to explain and validate my experiences before they can even begin to understand them. God, that has to suck. It, it sucks ass, <laughs> honestly. So I, a lot of the things that I study being that I study black stuff, I study black feminist hip hop rhetoric and how it's used as a tool of activism. Shout out Those to the people like, who study hip-hop <laughs> shout out my son is shoddy uh over here with the hip-hop i see you <laughs> one two one two but yeah so it, it's it's hard so like before i can even explain what i study or what i talk about i have to explain what it is so it's it's hard if you don't understand what i'm talking about how can you understand how i'm using something that my people love as a tool of liberation wow and so um uh, I don't know if you a lot of you know, but once you start getting into masters and doctoral programs, you start looking for people to be in like your committee that align with your research. Do you have anybody on your campus, uh, faculty wise, that you can look to as a mentor or that aligns with with your research goals? Yeah, there are a few faculty members on campus who I am completely fangirling over. Um, one is Dr. Blair M. Kelly. She is amazing. I saw her at a talk, and she is one of the people who actually encouraged me, or I wanted to apply, made me want to apply to the program okay. at NC State. And she calls herself a Black historian of Black Twitter, so it was really cool um, with her talk that she does. But then again, she's in the history department. She's not even in my program, so when when it comes to um, me finding faculty members and whatnot to serve on my committee, it's my first semester. I'm fresh in the program, so I'm still finding my footing and, you know, what exactly I want to study. But when it comes to um, black scholars specifically in that space, it's hard. I'm probably going to have to look outside of my university at Duke or UNC to see if there are any faculty members available. Not saying that people... Hmm. that people who are not of color are that black people can't, you know, contribute to a dissertation or to a committee and study anything about blackness. I'm not saying you have to be black to uh, study blackness, but it's, it's hard. Yeah, so um, there are a few faculty members who might come around. Some are on uh, maternity leave and whatnot who I'm hoping and praying that they come back and I can do some directed readings with but I mean it just goes to show like what you hear your whole life as a black woman you have to work twice as hard to get twice as far so, I kind of um, want you to like um, so I went to uh, a brunch you know mm. black girls brunch type deal bougie black brunch <laughs> shit um, but it, it was um Black at the table, and I'm gonna have uh, Andrea on here uh, as soon as I, we can get our schedules to align. But um, at that brunch, we discussed mental health and mm. the notion that uh, black people have to work twice as hard to get half as far. 
And they told us that we should erase that notion. And mostly because it, it makes us put extra pressures on us mm-hmm. and impacts our mental health because we always feel like we have to one-up you know, people. And so you have to do what's good enough to get you sat- make you satisfied and not what's, not what's good enough to receive accolades from white people. And not necessarily saying that that's what you're yeah. doing, but, I mean, a lot of times when we get put in positions of power, we, we feel as though we have to satisfy the white masses. And um, Do you think that's what happened with the judge? In the case. I think that's what happened with the judge. I also think that's what happened when we talk about our girl uh, Kamala. Kamala. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say this woman's name. I say it wrong every I time. I'm sorry, so wrong. <laughs> Look, but I think that that's also what happens with her. We get into these positions as black people, as black women, and we feel like we have to we have to be hard asses, so we have to be um, certain people so that we can appeal to white people. And you know what? You say you have to really start doing stuff and living and appealing to stuff for yourself. And I know that's difficult because, I mean, you're in a space where you're going to be under white scrutiny because you're the only black woman in Mm. in that space, right? Um, And again, it's a little easier for me to say because I took... I took a little bit more of a safer route, but a very much more expensive route, Lord, because CA, you ain't no joke. I mean, I'm at an all-black school for my PhD. I am the youngest, uh, so I can I can, I can can sit with Brittany on that. But um, my black cohort members celebrate me and my brilliance uh, frequently to the point where I'd be like, y'all, all I said was that black, there's a black Twitter. Like... <laughs> But because I'm the youngest and I'm the most integrated into the digital world and I have a lot of that insight, like, I'm telling you, most of my cohort members are, like, 30, 35 plus um, in their 60s. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And so they're, this is, like, you know, they're getting their PhDs, like, towards the the end of their essentially lives, right? Uh, Knock on wood. Sorry. I mean, I want y'all to live longer. But, I mean, I'm just saying, like, um... For them to see me, a young black woman, go ahead and going for it, um, I get celebrated so much more in that space than when I did when I was at LSU. I seemed like I felt like at LSU I was always speaking up for black people. Right. Whenever I took a course, whenever we had a discussion, mm-hmm. I was always the person who was going to insert the black rhetoric because right. I don't want us to be left out of the story. You're not going to leave us out of the story. I'm going to say this black shit. Is, oh, yeah, unapologetic. But then the, the, the issue the, with that is when you don't want to talk about black it. person. Yeah. When we bring up something, <laughs> hold, let, look, last week we were reading about Jack. Jacqueline Stewart, and a black tech spectatorship in Chicago. And if you don't know, Chicago is a black-ass city. Blackly, black, black, black. So, you know, sometimes life happens and you skim very frequently in grad school and you don't read the 800 pages they assign. I hardly ever read this. This was just (laughs) one of the things that I did not read word for word. And as soon as the discussion started about black spectatorship, all eyes were on me. And I'm like, was I, am I Jacqueline Stewart? How am I supposed to talk to you? But just because I'm black doesn't mean that I know everything about blackness. And I hate that, you know, you become the token black person. And I applaud you 
um, for getting your PhD at CAU. Um, and I'm so happy that you have that space with your black cohorts who celebrate you. Um, but that's another thing when it comes back to this, because not only am I studying Eurocentric tradition knowledge, I'm also having to read Afrocentric knowledge as well on my own time to stay up to par with those scholars Do of you mine. have Afrocentric uh, classes? No. God, Brittany, this yeah. has got to be tough. Yeah, it's hard. Oh, my goodness. We probably should have had this conversation, like, off air, because it's very interesting. It's yeah. very interesting to see the other side and see people who are getting, who are studying similar things to me. I'm studying uh, Southern hip-hop and the um, political and social themes and, and the lyricism of Southern hip-hop, but it's very different to discuss with someone who's, who's studying something similar to me who isn't taking, like, the black classes that I'm... Like, I'm reading, like, Afrofuturism type shit. We're reading, like, Octavia Butler and Sam Delaney right now in classes. Um, And I have to do direct readings to get this kind of material. Goodness. My my mentor right now, who I drive, like, a damn near hour out on Thursdays (laughs) to see... um, is Dr. Regina Bradley, who, if you don't know, if you study any kind of Southern hip hop, she is like one of the leader lead researchers, you know, in that kind of in that kind of thing. So, like, the amount of access looks a lot differently, and it it has to be overwhelming. So now we're about to be in a mental health discussion. Oh yeah, how do you deal with that, like mentally? Yeah, uh, as a PhD student, for those who are PhD students, you are stressed as fuck. Girl, you ain't <laughs> All never the fucking time. Hard. I take two days off to go enjoy homecoming, and I'm like in the car, like stressing out. How am I going to read 200 pages to participate in class tomorrow? But uh, yeah, mental health is a real issue, and I, um, I would be lying if I didn't say I didn't struggle. Um, especially as somebody with uh, a background in uh, depression and anxiety, uh, it's rough. So, yeah, a lot of people don't in the black community don't particularly, and it's getting a little better now with as far as mental health goes. But a lot of people don't pay attention to it. So I, like I said, I feel like I'm in two different spaces, and I'm trying my best not to. I made a promise to myself that when I started this program, I would not be only a PhD student. Um, I am married. I have a husband. I'm a wife. Uh, eventually, in the next couple of years, I want to be a mother. I refuse to sacrifice my wants and needs outside of this program um, for this program. So if I want to have a day where I just want to be black as shit, guess what? I'm taking my ass up the street to A&T to just be black as shit. And that's perfectly okay. There are other black people in my program as well. But, you know, um, you just have to take that time and take that space for yourself. So I really appreciate um, the whole notion to get rid of thinking um, I have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Because sometimes I just don't do work. Or instead of picking up Foucault and reading Foucault, I pick up this book that I'm reading, How Search Engines, Search Engines Reinforce Racism. And I'm going to talk about that shit in class because you're not going to ignore the things that black women face. But, I mean... At the end of the day, like, I'm okay with not doing work sometimes and taking a day to myself. I had to learn how to be okay with just being okay. There's nothing wrong and with that just is, being okay. And that is beautiful. Yeah. Look, um, so I guess we're going to round this conversation out <laughs> with, a, with a mental health discussion. And so... Um, I I go to therapy and I firmly believe in therapy. I firmly believe in seeing a therapist and with all that I do and all that I go through, sometimes I just need somebody to kind of to to talk about and I, to talk to. And I think one of the first things my me and my therapist talked about was perfectionism. Like mm-hmm. she was like, "I think you're a perfectionist," and I was like, 
girl, no, I'm a procrastinator. It take me so long to get shit done. Like, I am the last person that you would think is a perfectionist. And she was like, no, sometimes perfectionists are the worst procrastinators because they want everything to be, like, perfect, so they spend more time thinking about it and how they're going to do it than actually doing it. And I was like, damn. I am she, she is me. Damn, that is me. <laughs> and then when it don't come out right, you be driving yourself crazy that it don't come out right. Like, mm. damn, I could have did that much better had I started at this time, this, this, that, and the other. Like, and and we talked about that at that brush too. It was mm. like sometimes it's it's okay to be okay. Sometimes it's okay to do enough to get by. And, you know, I'll never forget for as long as I live, last semester, I was sick as shit last semester. I had found out that I had an autoimmune disease. I was tired all the goddamn time. And I the semester before, I had a 4.0. And I'm like, I'm about to graduate my PhD with a 4.0. I'm going to keep pushing this, that, and the other. And I was taking some hard-ass classes. I'm a political science. Uh, I'm a double concentration, African-American studies and political science. So I take double the amount of courses that, that regular people take. Um in order to to get this degree. So I'm, like, taking political science classes. I'm reading all these books. And not to work and mention working full-time. Oh, my, and my I... My girl is a badass. Y'all hear me? <laughs> and I work full-time. I work 40 hours a week at an advertising agency. So, I mean, I ain't doing no bullshit Not work. to mention the hours she clocks on black Twitter. You know? <laughs> right. And I, and I work part-time on black Twitter. Um, and so, and I end up getting a, a B. And, um... I remember calling up one of my friends, and I was crying. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I got a B. I got Bs this semester. Like, what the fuck? And they were like, bruh, get a fucking PhD. Yes. If you don't take that goddamn B and, like, go on. And it, it stressed me out damn near all fucking summer that I got a B. <laughs> and I think after I went to that, and the girl was talking about how she was in her comps, and she was studying, and how, like, she, you know, she has to know that you gotta, you just got to get in there and do your best. And you yeah. can't beat yourself up over doing your best. And I think that's one of the things, uh, I have given myself a lot, maybe probably too much goddamn slack. I've given myself a <laughs> lot of slack this semester. If I don't want to do the shit, I ain't going to do it. Right, pretty much. One of the best pieces of advice I did get from a professor um, that I'm currently taking now. We walked in and he said, the first thing I'm going to tell y'all, y'all are in a PhD program. Nobody gives a fuck about your grades anymore. And I took that to heart because sometimes he said, sometimes it's okay. Put the book down and pick up the fire stick remote and watch Netflix. And I appreciated it. <laughs> I, I, well, I was going to do that anyway. Because that's just how I am. <laughs> Thank you, Brittany, for joining me. We're about to wrap it up. Uh, yeah, and, and the church announcements coming up next. I want to thank you for tuning in to this week's segment. Don't be too upset with me, guys. I'm going to be away for a while. I have surgery on October 23rd, so y'all send up the prayers, all the prayers, the blessings, the good vibes, the energy for me. Thank you, Brittany, for coming out and being my guest. Tell them where they can follow you at. Yeah, you can follow your girl on Instagram and Twitter at BC Young. That's B-E-E-C Young on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> yes, follow BC Young on Instagram, on Twitter. I'm probably retweeting some shit she says because she's all intellectual and stuff. She's the she's more of the, the politics than the hood rat. But um, I will go ahead and, and take that other side for her. I am looking for guests for this show. Anybody who wants to be a guest on Hood Rat Politics, hit me up, let me know. I also need a theme song. 
also need a producer from when I get back because I want to fact check and I want to be as factual as possible and I can't fact check in the middle of talking and then I listen to stuff like as I, as I play it back weeks later and be like damn I should have said this or damn I need to correct this but by then y'all y'all have forgotten about it so yes I need a producer I also need black-owned businesses to hit me up. I want to give you some airtime on the show. I want to play your commercials and my breaks. So I need you to hit me up. Follow us at Hood Rat Politics on Instagram and Twitter. That's H-O-O-D-R-A-T-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S. Damn, for the first time, I almost forgot how to spell that shit. Anyway, as always, you can follow me at JSOFAMOUS, J-A-E-S-O-F-A-M-O-U-S. It's Jay, and I'm out.